Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Pilar Gerasimo. Pilar is the founding editor of Experience Life magazine, an award-winning whole life health and fitness magazine that reaches more than 2.5 million people nationwide. If you're not a huge fan of Pilar, you just don't know enough about her. Seriously, Pilar is one of my favorite people on the planet, and the wisdom she lends us has the power to radically transform our lives. She is an old soul with a new mindset. In this chat, we're going to talk about how you can figure out what to do with your life. We're going to talk about how to find mentors and people who care about the same stuff that you do, and why being healthy is really a revolutionary act. We're going to talk about what insights she can offer us about success, integrity, and authenticity. And we're also going to touch on why the future is better than we're made to believe in our 20s. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you on the call. Really delighted to be here with you. Awesome. And to jump right in, I feel like one of the main challenges that young adults face is we feel really lost. And there's this pressure that we have, in a sense, to pick the right path, pick the right job or the right career, because um, we feel like this is the decision, whether it's the job or the career, we feel like this is the decision that is going to have you know, the biggest impact on our life, and it's going to dictate our 30s and our 40s and our 50s and our 60s, essentially our entire life. So there's so much pressure on kind of figuring out what job to pick or what career choice to make. Um, and the paradox of today is that as young adults, we have more options than ever before in history, right? Sweet. Um, but the, <laughs> the paradox is, is that um, all those options, all those choices are causing so much uncertainty and anxiety and fear of picking any choice because it may be wrong. So how do, how do we go about figuring out, you know, essentially what we should do with our lives? Yeah. Wow, that's a huge question. Well, I think the first thing I'd say, I mean, I would say to almost any generation of young person, and then I'll go and talk to you a little bit about this specific generation, but I think almost every generation feels that way at that point in their lives to some extent. I mean, I remember feeling that way myself in the, you know, 80s and 90s, <laughs> which are very different time economically and socially. But I think it's a time where you tend to feel like what you have to, what you do, what you choose to do is going to be what defines the rest of your life. Like you said, that big pressure, I've got to get the right job, I've got to get on the right track. And I think at that point of your life, in a way, what's more important is figuring out who you are and what makes you tick. And that a lot of what you're going to be doing at that age is really about experimenting as a way of finding out what turns you on, what turns your crank, what, you know, what pisses you off, what can you not tolerate. You know, a lot of the time I think people start to feel that there's a path for success that's sort of preordained for them. Sometimes it's like, okay, well, either my family thinks I should do this, so I'm going to do it, or my family's always done this, so I'm going to do it, or contrarian, right? I'm never going to do that. <laughs> and I think that sometimes the, the wonderful thing about that is it gives you a pressure like you may decide I'm going to absolutely steer away from that and it gives you a sense of direction or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it and then you start feeling the pressure of it maybe not being a good fit for you. What's important about that is not so much whether you're succeeding or struggling in a particular career path or you know, graduate school path or something. 
it's that you're discovering some things about yourself and what you like. And one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about this before, it's really essential to discover your core values. Like, what do you care about in this world, in this life? Like, what in your life so far has given you the most pleasure and excitement? What has made you feel like you're going to sleep at the wheel of your life? You know, you want to do the things, find ways to do more of the things, obviously, that leverage your best natural strengths and inclinations and passions and talents and that support the things that you care about. There's this other thing, of course, which is the pressure to get a job and either pay off a school loan or pay for yourself to go to school or just pay for yourself to be in the world. And I think that there is a mistake sometimes that folks, younger folks make um, which is they start to kind of go toward the path of the most money. Now this is turning out to be a little bit less of a problem with the current generation from what I understand because they've sort of seen the mistakes that previous generations have made in chasing money and kind of throwing away a lot of their life value and their lifetime. But I think that it's also really important to remember that that place, you know, whether you're in your late teens or early 20s or even early 30s, it's really more important to begin developing skills and strengths and a kind of social, a set of social skills and talents for dealing with people than it is to begin accomplishing or checking any big career moves off of your list at that point. And this is based, again, on my own experience. I didn't really figure out what I wanted to do at all until I was in my early 30s. I, I had a very kind of curving path from what I would almost call dead-end job to dead-end job. What was not dead-end about it, though, was that I discovered a lot about the things that I did well easily, the things that I really had to struggle to do and that made me feel frustrated and dumb. <laughs> and I started to go, I want to do more of these things that really light me up. I think if we had more people give themselves a sense of permission early in life, to explore. It's kind of like the study abroad idea or the taking the year off to go to Europe idea. It's not so much that you're living in Europe or in Asia. It's that you're away from your kind of assumptions of what your life has to be. You're giving yourself a context in which experimentation is not only permitted, it's sort of unavoidable. <laughs> and if you pay attention, you may start to pay attention to what's happening. I think that you tend to find yourself on a better path when you come home. You realize like, wow, this is really for me, or eh, this is really not for me. So long-winded way, I guess, of answering your question to say, the pressure is understandable because your life matters. And I think more maybe than any generation so far in history, this generation of young adults' lives and choices really do matter an enormous amount, that there's a kind of sense of urgency about you know, wanting to make a difference and understanding that the path we're on right now is largely unsustainable and some of the choices that previous generations have made have left messes that this generation is going to, you know, have to find some ways to clean up or deal with at least. Um, but there's also real opportunity in that and an experimental mindset of like how can I participate in this and create something good? How can I participate this in a way that helps me discover something about myself and bring out the best in myself? I think those are the questions that are really interesting right now. And you don't have to make any one choice. What's important is to be in making some choices and getting the feedback that you're, you know, either works for you or doesn't work for you. Yeah, I love that. I love kind of realizing that this part of our lives as young adults is really an identity quest to figure out who we are and what's important to us. and that the journey is really inside, not so much outside. And it's, you know, what, what makes me tick? What am I passionate about? What are my strengths? What do I care about? It's exactly what you were speaking about. 
and I really resonated with when you threw out, and a lot of that has to do with breaking assumptions, breaking mm-hmm. assumptions that were handed down to us unconsciously from, you know, our family, from society, from pop culture, um, and saying, what works for me? Like, screw you guys. I'm going to go figure this out for myself and um, ideally, you know, find other people who can resonate with this, this other stuff not working for me. Let me find other people who, in a sense, have similar beliefs or values once we start to understand what those are. So I think one of the challenges once we come to that point is that we do feel isolated, um, and we and we do feel like no one kind of gets us in a sense, especially our our parents and mm-hmm. um, maybe some of the older generations that we speak to. And we, I can speak from my own experience. I know I've I've had like a fear of opening up and asking for help because, especially as a man, but as I think for everybody, um, there was something associated with vulnerability and weakness. And I felt like if I asked for help, I'd be vulnerable and I'd be weak. And I kind of always had to put on this this front that it was all good and I kind of had it all figured out um, when I really didn't, you know, lost, <laughs> completely lost. And that was totally not the case. And in the last two or three years, I've become really comfortable at cultivating the muscle of being vulnerable and asking for help and saying, you know, it's not all good. Like, this is not working for me. What do I have to do? Who do I need to speak to to figure something like this out? So one of the yeah. things I'm I'm curious about is how do how can kind of young adults go about finding um, groups of people who have like a similar belief or values as them or even mentors that they can kind of look to them as like, hey, here's, a, here's something that may work for us. Well, that's a phenomenal question. Well, I will first of all say I love the whole idea of mentors, and I, they don't have to be the whole, your whole life long mentors, but I think having a collection or a posse of mentors as you go through different phases of your life, and there are mentors for personal growth, there are mentors for professional development, there are mentors for physical you know, health and fitness and athleticism, whatever it is that, that is important to you, um, and so it doesn't all have to be one. I think the other thing is that that vulnerability, being in that place of being willing to ask those questions, is enormously valuable. And although it's a kind of uncomfortable place to be, it's one of the richest places to be. You know, we, sometimes we talk about beginner's mind. When you acknowledge, if you look at something as though you don't know it, even if you think you know it, <laughs> how do I do something I've done a million times before? It can really bring a kind of aliveness and a poignancy to that experience that helps you feel more alive and helps you become more awake and notice stuff. Um, one thing that struck me, Jacob, though, too, is that even though it might seem like you can't relate necessarily to this older generation, and they're going to be, you know, what, two or even three generations ahead of you, some of which are going to be very old people, uh, some of which are going to just be made a little bit older than you, all of them have probably gone through some version of the experience you're going through now. And although it might have been at a different time in history, in a different, you know, socioeconomic environment or a different social environment, in many cases, it's interesting to ask older people, do you remember a time in your life when you felt like this? You know, if you are feeling vulnerable, it can be kind of fun to invite vulnerability out of them. And, you know, they may or may not be honest with you, but think about the people who grew up in the 60s, you know. I mean, those people are getting older now. The boomers are, um, you know, what we consider to be sometimes old people in the 60s or whatever. Well, they were going through crazy revolutions at that time and really breaking a ton of rules, and they were different rules. 
Um, but like many, many generations before them, everybody breaks the rules of the generation before them. You know, so it's, we always think it's unique, but I think it's sort of a universal experience and it's kind of fun to use that as a bonding place or at least as an opening, as an invitation to connect with somebody who may not have your experience but might have had a comparable experience or something that can shed light for you in, in, on, a, on a different version of that time. You know, remember when you were 20 what was going on in your life? It's going to be a fun conversation to ask somebody in a different generation. It might be really clarifying that you're not alone at all. On the other hand, I do think you know, there is something unique about every generation too. And I think the one thing about this generation that another generation may not be all that helpful for is that sort of the opportunity that's facing the, the young generation now is largely based on fixing the challenges and the problems and the waste that was created by previous generations. I honestly think the biggest business successes of the next generation are all going to be people solving the problems that were created in the generation or two or three or four before them. I'm thinking I was at a conference last week um, in Denver called the LOHAS conference. It's an acronym for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. And they had a business plan contest um, where young people came up and sort of summarized what their big business idea was and they competed for some startup money. All of those businesses were really interesting. Like there was one where they were providing um, snacks, healthy snacks into workplaces that were in reusable containers and they were being delivered by bicycle, green energy, to these you know, corporate headquarters. And instead of going to the vending machine to get Cheetos, they would deliver these wonderful healthy snacks that people would then you know, eat these vegetables and nuts and things and then put the reusable containers in a bin and they would pick them up. And, and I was like, well, that's really cool. That's neat. The next people who got up, they were, um, they the people who won the contest were um, growing mushrooms in kits and selling kits where you can buy a kit that's already inoculated with this fungus, water it in your kitchen, and it grows amazing, beautiful shiitake mushrooms. And it turns out that mushrooms are also wonderful for resolving um, soil contamination, and it can grow in basically like used up coffee grounds and waste streams, right? And there were two or three other companies, and they all had that in common. Every single innovative, cool business idea that was coming up, now granted, this was at a Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability conference, but they were all neat ideas that just lit these entrepreneurs up, and they were all ideas that were solving one problem by also solving a, another problem. You know, like we got too many unhealthy people. We've got too much waste. We've got too many depressed people. All of the anguish that this generation is feeling is in a weird way a kind of natural resource, I think, that can be, well, I don't want to use the word exploited, but maybe you know, leveraged or optimized. If you can help solve a real problem, particularly one that's causing you pain as you observe it, or giving you a sense of anxiety, <laughs> diving in and choosing to solve that problem from a place of passion and determination while also being vulnerable and acknowledging you may not have all the answers. That sounds like a great, rem that's a great recipe for success in my mind and a great way to discover your own best talents and gifts in the service of something that matters to you. That's incredible. And as you're, as you're speaking of this, um, what's coming to mind is that so much of what I was looking for when I was kind of doing the corporate gig, and I trust that this is um, representative of the generation, is meaning. I was looking for some meaning in life, some purpose, and like a deeper sense of why, why am I here, like what can I do, and what's, what's, for, 
really cool to hear you articulate is that some of the best business opportunities in the future are going to be um, kind of with deep meaning, with deep senses of there's a strong sense of need and urgency to solve some of these problems, and that that's an incredible that's an incredible thing. And then if I look at my own journey, and and as you were speaking about, okay, so what are some of the things that are are causing young adults the most you know anguish and upsetting them the most, and how do they kind of figure out what that solution may be, um, perhaps as they're going through it or, or as they're dealing with it or how other people have dealt with it. I look at my own life and I'm at this point, you know, quote, unquote, my, my professional title is a life coach. Um, <laughs> and it's because specifically my life was so screwed up, you know, um, from much of my childhood, you know, and particularly yeah. um, I wrote a guide to help people find their purpose in life, particularly because I was, you know, waking up every morning, like, what is the purpose? Where is the purpose? What is the excitement? Right. What do I do? I was so lost. And in a sense, now I've cultivated a business out of that where, um, you know, I, I just am living a lifestyle. I'm living a life where it's extraordinary because I kind of did exactly what you just spoke about. So that's really cool. I love that. And I also think it solves the other problem which you raised in your question, which is that feeling of isolation. Because once you really do start pursuing something you're authentically passionate about and feel a sense of purpose and urgency, it's naturally going to put you on the path of other people who are thinking about that same thing or trying to solve that same problem. And suddenly you find out you're not the only one. And you're not. I mean, I think that there are, there's a hunger for this wisdom at this time, and it's a hunger that is healthy for us to have. I mean, it, we collectively, all of the generations that are on the planet right now, I think, would benefit enormously from finding more purpose-centered sources of satisfaction rather than just consuming madly as much as we can and leaving the mess, you know, for the next generation to clean up. I think that we've – I think that, you know, I've discovered this in my own life too, that when I was working the quote-unquote corporate job – I mean, I, I, I now also work for a corporation, but I work on a project and within a corporation that matters a lot to me – but at the time where I was just going from job to job and filling up a space in a cube and collecting a paycheck and, you know, finding out from some faceless, nameless, you know, manager, you know, what I was supposed to be doing, it seemed like it was a senseless use of my life energy. And I think that that was a very healthy feeling to have because it kind of was a senseless <laughs> use of my life energy. But it was good information to have. What I found out was I'm not going to be lit up by working in a place like that. I'm not going to be lit up working on a project like this. I need to feel a sense of connection to some purpose that is bigger. And that's what sends you in the direction of looking for that purpose that is bigger. If you didn't feel that pain, you wouldn't move, you know? And so listening to that pain, going in pursuit of something that feels better, not only sends you in the direction of something that feels better, it puts you on a path where you're going to connect with other people who, like you, share that conviction, share that interest, that love, that passion for something bigger and better. And those are much more fun people to hang out with. There's nothing worse than spending your whole, you know, any part of your career surrounded by people who you don't respect, don't care about, don't get along with, who don't think you're, you know, whatever, ambitious enough or 
focused enough on widget cranking or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing to be a model widget cranker. You know, if you're not cut out to be a widget cranker, do not crank widgets. That's not going to be the thing that works, and you're going to be surrounded by people for whom widget cranking is the pinnacle of, of achievement, and that's what they want in life. Well, they're going to be people who bore you silly and make you disgusted and angry and frustrated and want to go drink six six-packs a night, and that's probably not very good for anybody either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to anesthetize yourself to get through your life, it's a pretty good sign that you, you're not on the path that would be best serving you and your whole world. Yeah, speaking of vulnerability, growing up in New York City, I don't even know what a widget cranker is. So, <laughs> Well, so I actually there. borrowed that phrase from David Allen. He, he's a productivity uh, expert. But, you know, widgets are basically like, you know, nameless, faceless little bits of stuff. You know, they're, the, they're all the plastic doodads and gadgets and things. And, you know, cranking them out, you know, basically factory work. It's the equivalent of, you know, going up to a machine and turning a crank and having widgets come out. It's just this kind of purpose. You know, it's productive, I guess. It produces widgets. It produces a thing, you know, a, a doodad on the other end. But it's impersonal, and it's, it isn't really serving anything larger. It's just a way of creating some sort of deal that then someone else goes and buys. And that's kind of the consumption economy. That's the materials economy that we've all been living in. And I think it's the thing that, you know, what I think about my niece, Sansi, who's 21, and I look at her and how she kind of looks at the world, and sometimes she just shakes her head, and she's like, why do people, like, want all this stuff? Like, why, what is it at the dollar store when you walk in? I guess everything that you see at the dollar store is some version of a widget. <laughs> you know, it's mm. like, do you want to spend your life creating that stuff, designing that stuff, producing that stuff, shipping that stuff, landfilling that stuff, or do you not? And I think that there increasingly is kind of an appetite among this younger generation that says, I'm not so sure widgets is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, thank you for that clarification. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. I realize it's a piece of vocabulary that's probably from another generation. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have widgets anymore. <laughs> I don't know what yeah, they have they're, now. They're on, they're on Macs. You have like widgets on, on PCs and Macs, you know, these little things that tick in the corners. They're, they're small applications. So that's my right, only right. reference for that word. Oh, that's so funny. That's such a great generational Of course, yes, I have widgets galore on my computer. But I know so they were named that for the original widget, which is a thingamajobby yeah. that does something. <laughs> Basically, this is a, what you have on your computer is an electronic widget. It's something that does Perfect. something. So that's great. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. So switching gears a little bit, um, one of the words that I heard you throw out there was revolutionary. And of course, it's something I wanted to speak about, particularly with you. Um, and to kind of just preface it, I think that um, as, a, as a whole, kind of this generation feels like, in, in a sense, um, pop culture has kind of raised us, as an MTV culture has raised us to say, okay, well, you know, what do you value? You value money, you value, you value fame, you value beauty. Um, and they don't say it directly, but they say it through advertisements, they say it through commercials, they say it through movies, and very subtly, which is a little bit perhaps more dangerous. Um, and not only do they say we should value these things, but they say that we should be able to get these things with little or no effort, with instant gratification. You know, we should be Zuckerbergs, we should be um, these big, successful whatevers that um, that, and we achieve these things, um, and kind of the fact that that doesn't come naturally, that there is 
for the most part, no instant gratification, even if we wanted those things, you know, and, and it, kind of the research is, is showing, like, intuitively what I've experienced, what a lot of people are experiencing is that, that stuff doesn't necessarily bring us happiness. But right. I think at the, at the core, um, we feel somewhat powerless because we have really big ambitions as a generation. We have really big ambitions, but the place that we're currently at is a very far place from where our ambitions are. So there's a big discrepancy between where we, you know, our current accomplishments and our future ambitions. And in a sense that it's, it, we almost feel powerless. Um, have you ever yeah. seen the movie Fight Club? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, great film. Yeah. Okay, cool. So growing up, the film came out, I think, in like 1999, growing up. And I was, I'm 27 now. I was 14 at the time. And for the, you know, ensuing decade when anybody asked me what was your favorite movie, I would say it's Fight Club. Not particularly because I love the violence or that, but I, it was the first time in my life as a, as a young child that I was really introduced to challenging the culture and yeah. kind of knowing that the culture wasn't right and, and kind of this thing, I'm going to challenge the culture. So I actually want to read a quote from Flight Club here. Um, so, so it's Brad Pitt, right? It's Tyler Durden who has this red leather jacket. He's like the most badass dude in the world. And he says, I see all this potential and I see it squandered. Damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. With the middle children of history, man, no purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is spiritual, and our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly starting to learn that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. So while I love the quote, I don't completely think it's valid or accurate. I mean, I love it enough to read it now. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that we have a purpose, and I do think that we have a great war as a generation. And perhaps times have changed a little bit since that was written. Um, and I think the great war is with our culture. It's the culture it's with ourselves. And, and how do we live in a culture that perhaps isn't, healthy. You know, Krishnamurti said it's no great measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And the reason I bring this up, yeah, the reason I bring this up with you is because I've heard you say that being healthy is a revolutionary act. And I do feel like we do have that great war to fight and we do have that purpose. And a lot of it has to do with being healthy. So can you kind of explain and elaborate a little bit on any of what I said, but particularly on, you know, what you mean by being healthy is a revolutionary act? Wow. Well, I love that quote, and I love that movie for kind of making plain something that I think was just sort of underneath the consciousness a little bit of a, of a generation, probably more than one. Um, so I would first say it's it, the, the, the whole point of that amazing little soliloquy, that little, that, that bursting forth of frustration on the part of the character is designed to ignite a sense of recognition of, you know, the ways in which that that is true and the ways in which we don't want that to be true. That, that there's a kind of sense of like, no, that's not right. Like what you, your response of like, no, there has to be a purpose. I feel a purpose. I know there's a purpose. And I think you're right. It is a fight with your culture. It's a fight to change your culture. The, phrase being healthy is a revolutionary act, I think could just as easily be being happy is a revolutionary act. Mm -hmm. I wrote being healthy is a revolutionary act as a way of expressing 
my sort of growing frustration with uh, the challenges of choosing to be healthy in the face of an unhealthy culture. I love the Krishnamurti um, quote because I think that that's so true. It's like to adjust to a society in which more than half of us are on prescription drugs at any given time, more than half of us are ill with a chronic disease at any given time, where the generation of kids that are growing up are the first that's projected to live less long than their parents' generation. You know, to become accustomed and comfortable uh, with that, accustomed to and comfortable with that, I don't think that's a mark of a good, successful, healthy society. So a lot of what I do with, in my work, both as the editor of Magazine Experience Life and the founder of RevolutionaryAct.com, is sort of about reframing the challenge of being healthy in an unhealthy world. It isn't just about going on a diet and getting exercise any more than you know, being a so-called success as a young person is about getting a six-figure job and driving a BMW. It, is, isn't, it doesn't work that way. That's not, that's not going to get you there. There's too much else going on right now. And in the context of health, you know, it's like we work jobs that are insane hours that so we don't sleep and then we're stressed out and then we don't relate well to our mates or our partners or our friends and then we have to overcompensate for that by taking antidepressants or drinking or doing drugs on the side that sort of help us get through the day and that creates even more of a cycle of unsustainability and then we consume stuff and then we get financially out of control and that creates more stress and you start to see how this kind of building unsustainable system happens. I think that the great thing about movies like Fight Club is that it begins to make, it creates the possibility of like a different way of living could be equally sexy and satisfying or maybe even more sexy and satisfying. Not that beating the crap out of each other in basement is sexy or satisfying to me, but symbolically, let's get real with each other. Let's express authentically with each other. Let's, let's acknowledge that getting all of our furniture from Ikea or Pottery Barn and is going to be the thing that creates magically some kind of sense of wholeness for us. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a nice place to live or being comfortable, but if you think that that alone is going to be the thing that gives your life purpose and meaning, I think like the character, the protagonist, and the spike, well, they were both for the protagonist, I guess, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, the guy who had his apartment blow up, um, it, there's this sort of shocking moment where you realize this is all an illusion and a terrible lie that we've been encouraged to pursue by the people like you mentioned, advertising, I think, is probably the thing to blame. I mean, it's the plant the idea that you're unhappy the way you are, and if you just had this one thing, you'd be happier. That's by yeah. design. It's not an accident. You know, that was built into our society. If you've, I don't know if you've probably seen the story of stuff, Annie Leonard's great video, um, where she explains the materials economy and how the pressure to consume was basically designed into our economy um, after World War II, where we had too much capacity of production and not enough people buying things. And so advertising, you know, the Mad Men era came about as a way of getting people to buy more stuff. And that was the way to force growth in the economy. I think what we're experiencing now and the sense of anguish and frustration and anxiety that younger people feel is the result of like that's come home to roost and we're looking at the mess that it created. You know, it, it did create vast amounts of wealth, but that wealth has now been concentrated in the hands of one less than 1% of the population. And if young people feel a sense of like, wow, there's a huge gap between where I am and where at least I think I want to be. I've been told I ought to be. I remember yeah. when Friends, the, the TV show Friends came out, 
when I think I was in college or something. And everyone was like, God, they have such huge apartments. They have such nice clothes. My life is terrible compared to that. Why can't I, you know, live in this society where I work half a job but somehow live in a 4,000-square-foot apartment with sexy people who have Manala Blahnik shoes? <laughs> I mean, nobody lived like that who really worked those jobs. It was just a fantasy, but it was created by TV, and advertising was sold around it. And the next thing you know, a whole generation felt like they had to keep up with Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox. And it was a nightmare. You know, it was just nothing. It bred dissatisfaction. So I think that I'll get back to being healthy and or being happy is a revolutionary act. It's like if that's the way your culture is pushing you, to take a breather and step back and say, I'm going to look at this a little bit differently. I'm going to look at this skeptically, which is what happened in Fight Club. Like this is all a crazy illusion. Let me experiment until I find out what does work for me. Let me see if maybe, you know, accepting that I'm going to have a little less stuff, but I'm going to have a whole lot more fun, or I'm going to maybe move up this corporate ladder less quickly or not at all, but I'm going to discover a passion that allows me to create a business or a, a job for myself that really does put my best interests and passions to work. And then I think the amount of wealth you can create on a variety of levels is almost unlimited. Um, but it isn't really the, it's not the monetary wealth that ultimately makes people super happy anyway. That's the reality. I mean, every generation learns that the hard way, I think. So what's your personal definition of success and what role does happiness play in that? Well, I guess my definition of success has always been this feeling that comes when you are giving your best gifts and you're operating at a high level, you're challenging yourself. I guess it's, you know, what um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi uh, calls, you know, optimal experience or flow. Um, I, I, I don't know that there is any pinnacle of success anybody achieves and knows that they've achieved. I think almost all of the, what it, I have experienced as success comes in the process. You know, it's the day-to-day feeling of good stuff is happening, and I'm a part of it. I'm creating something. I'm contributing something. I'm connecting with other people who are contributing something. I'm living in integrity with my values, and I'm challenging myself and growing. Now, those are my values. You know, I have a value for growth and a value for integrity, and those things matter to me. To someone else, success might be defined very differently. And I think that that's in a way for the best. I think part of my spiritual belief system is that, we are kind of all part of one big organism of, of life or consciousness or nature or God or whatever you want to call it, that we're all designed to kind of want different things and do different things. Just like, you know, there are cells within my body that produce certain kinds of proteins and other cells and organs in my body that do other things. Mm-hmm. I think wow. that each of us kind of plays a role in this world, and some of us are supposed to be turned on by, you know, cranking out thingamajobs. And others of us are supposed to be turned on by going, hey, do we really need this many thingamajobs? You know, <laughs> maybe we could be doing something more fun. You know, we need artists. We need producers. We need therapists and counselors and actors and, um, you know, gymnasts and, and violin players. Like, er, there's no one version of success. I think the success comes in doing what lights you up and doing it in the service of something that you believe makes the world a better place. So doing what you care about and doing that in a way that is of, of contribution to something larger than yourself, perhaps. Yeah, yeah I think so. You know, I saw, uh, just to share with you too, at that same conference that I was at in Boulder, um, there was this cool group of like slam poets, like a band, and I wish I could, I think their name is like Slam Nuba or something. But they were these incredible 
poets and, and vocalists, and they did like four or five different short pieces, and it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And I'm not somebody who goes to like poetry slams or spoken word things very often, but the honesty of expression of their delivery of their performance was so moving to me and reminded me about something in myself and something about us as humans that I kind of forgotten temporarily, which is that we are moved by each other's authentic expressions. And that's why we need to have people doing that. Now, I don't know, would my, you know, would your grandpa look at these people standing up there who I'm sure they're not making a whole lot of money doing poetry on the road, you know, and, and spoken word, but are they successes? Oh my God. Yes. And they moved a room with hundreds of people in it. Everyone just looked at each other. And they're like, after all of the presentations we heard, I mean, that's the one I'm never going to forget. <laughs> so, wow. you know, I, I think you have to really define success for yourself. But if you're doing what you really love, I know it sounds cliche, and you're determined to be really awesome and great at it and to get pleasure out of getting better at it and trusting that it goes back out into the world and creates something of beauty or value or intrigue. Um, that's all good. We need that. We need more of that. Yeah. So at this point, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of the technical jargon, like giving your greatest gifts and kind of expressing yourself authentically. But if I rewind, let's say five years, I would have no idea what that meant, you know, kind of not being in the personal development or the growth um, into the growth literature. So what is, authenticity mean to express yourself authentically because I think it's something that you're right like we do have this incredible I know for myself I have this incredible desire to speak my truth you know to be authentic um, but I didn't really know what what that meant or I didn't really kind of even know myself well enough five years ago to know mm-hmm. what was authentic for me and kind of what was programmed in there perhaps by society and um, what, why I had certain motivations that I didn't even realize. So the, the question that I, I bring up is, what does that mean to, to express yourself authentically or to be authentic? Well, maybe the best way that I can describe that is to just offer you an example from my own life. When um, I was on a retreat in my, I think, early 30s, and I knew what the word authentic meant, but I didn't really feel that until I was challenged by somebody to sort of look at why I was afraid of doing something that I wanted to do. Um, And I kind of had arrived at that realization that, you know, I I really wanted to be living my life a little differently than I was. I wasn't entirely happy with the way things were going, but there was something preventing me from making some of the choices I would have otherwise made. And when I got to the core of it, it was my fear of being judged by other people. I was afraid that I had, you know, people who would be disappointed in me, people who would be angry at me, people who would be let down, people who would think that, you know, I was stupid or I don't know, whatever. I mean, the the judgment that other people would have of me was keeping me stuck in this place. And for me, it was this realization that, like, this is not who I really am. I'm, I'm more invested in the version of myself that I think other people think, you know, is cool or admirable or right or good or perfect than I am in living my own life. That's not a good situation. And I don't, I think almost, I think we start out as kids being pretty authentic. It's like we come into the world and we're sort of like, here I am, I'm naked or I'm wearing diapers and I'm going to eat this thing on the floor because it's kind of cool. And it might be poop, but I might eat it anyway. I don't know, no one died. But then, we, you know, you get on this process where people tell you that's not polite and you shouldn't do that. And we go through about oh, 25 years of being socialized and being, you know, clued in to what other people expect of us. 
and that's not necessarily all bad. I mean, living in a, you know, living in a society and a community, that's part of the sort of social contractor agreement. There's certain things we don't do in polite company, blah, blah, blah. But in the process, I think we make a mistake of the certain elements of the way we are, who we are, are unacceptable. And we begin to design a version of ourselves that's palatable to other people or that we think is going to get us what we want. And we like snow the entire world and we snow ourselves in the process. And we just like suddenly wake up and realize we've made all these decisions that looked good on paper or that pleased other people or that made us look like we were hip or cool or whatever, but our lives aren't making us happy. And when we contemplate changing our lives so that they would make us happy, we have that feeling that I had of like, oh my God, but if I do that, X, Y, Z might happen. And you kind of said it's like, I might have to not look like as much of a success as I do right now. And other people might think I'm crazy or a failure or stupid or incapable or lazy. Then that's your inauthentic self. You know, the part of you that's saying, but you have to because someone else might think this. And that's really wow. classic teenagerhood. You know, I think that's a lot of what happens <laughs> really from the time we're, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, beyond that, all the way up until we start figuring it out, which usually takes a certain amount of pain before we're willing to drop the disguise. Um, you know, and actually there's a couple of, a great writer who talks about decloaking and that we have to sort of drop the, the cloak, the disguise of who we think other people expect us to be or who we think, the, the version of us that we think is acceptable or desirable. And then lo and behold, yeah. there's something much groovier underneath. How did that, I know kind of having known you, having known you for a little while and um, worked with you, I know that integrity is one of your values, and it's a really interesting word for me, and I wasn't always familiar with it. And I think that perhaps, I guess overall I'm curious what integrity means to you. Um, perhaps yeah. it may be related to authenticity. It may not. But, but why, is yeah. it, why is integrity one of your core values? Well, I can't tell you why it's a core value because I'm, it's a mystery to me. I think I, I just realized that about myself through a variety of experiences I had. I can tell you what it means to me. I mean, the reason it matters to me is because when I'm not – oh, so integrated. Let's define it first. So it, the word integrated and integrity are connected, and, and, they, and they mean something similar, which is that they kind of fit together, right? Like a building that has integrity is strong and has a structure that has integrity, fits together the way it should, and it will stand stable in a, in a wind, right? Integrated means things fit together, things go together and mix together. And for me, integrity means that all my different parts work together, that I'm, what I'm saying and doing match, that who I see myself as and who I put myself out there as, I feel myself to be and who I appear to be to other people. I, can't, I guess I can't control how I appear to them, but I'm not creating a false version of myself, you know, that I can go to bed at night feeling reasonably sure that I am who I am. I'm not having an identity crisis about that. Part of the reason that's important to me is that living in integrity takes a lot less, um, it takes a lot less stress and energy. I don't have to keep three or four or five different versions of myself straight and that I can live in peace with myself. I don't have to struggle with feeling like part of me is living a lie and, you know, hating myself for that. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be like as a person for whom that value isn't a value, so I don't need to compare it to, but I think ultimately being out of integrity for me costs me energy. If, I, if I'm not completely honest, if I'm living some part of my life in a way that feels like a lie, it costs me. 
it brings me down, it makes me bummed out, it makes me nervous. And it's just simpler and cleaner for me to live in integrity. And authenticity is part of that, right? It's like, yeah, you are what you are. You say who you, you are who you say you are. Um, I don't know. You know. There are people for whom integrity is not as much of a value, and it may be because something else is, is more. You know, Experimenting with different versions of themselves is more fun <laughs> than worrying about yeah. creating one coherent, cohesive, holistic version of oneself. That may come with time. Um, but yeah, that's why it matters to me. And life is really interesting and exciting enough as it is. I feel like I don't need to go creating a whole bunch of different versions of myself. <laughs> that said, Jacob, I will say this. I do think all of us have a lot of different selves inside of us at any given time. And I think the period of life, teenagerhood in particular, but you know, into your 20s and maybe even into your early 30s, like I said before, part of what you're doing is experimenting with different versions of yourself to find out which one sticks. And there's a rebel, and there's an artist, and there's an achiever, and there's a goody two shoes. And so they might all have residence inside you. It doesn't mean you have to pick one. It just means you need to find a way that those different selves can live in, in harmony with each other, in integrity, integrated with each other. Yeah, I love that. If I look at my own life, I, you know, I definitely have that rebellious spirit in me from the time when I was a young child. And what I'm doing now is very rebellious. You know, I've told society, get out of here. I'm going to do my own thing. You know, like what you're saying is not working for me. And in a sense, it was like when I was a child and I used to cut school or I used to go to these crazy things that we won't get into that my parents could tell you about. <laughs> and in, in, in a sense, I'm doing that now, but in a way that is of higher meaning. You know, it's a healthy way. It's a way of service. It's a way to integrate those, the learner in me, to integrate the kind of adventure part of me, to integrate all these all these different parts. So that's really cool to kind of look at in my in my own life and to kind of know that that is possible with enough with enough studying of ourselves. With, for me, I, I kind of view my kind of view my existence as like I am forever a student of Jacob, you know, and, the, yeah. and I will continuously learn about who Jacob is and who I want Jacob to be and, and kind of how to cultivate that over time. Um, yeah. So it's been it's been really fun kind of embracing that philosophy, which is not the norm. No, no, but that's a really great example of what integrity and authenticity is, right? Like you just, what you just described of I had to kind of break some rules when I was younger because the rules didn't work for me, you know, and that I was having to figure out what did. And, you know, now that you're in a position where you get to make those choices, and not everyone's going to understand them. And, you know, almost never do our parents understand the choices that we make. <laughs> because they have huge anxiety for us. God bless them. I mean, that's lovely that they care so much. And, you know, they don't know, and we don't know. It's a tightrope tight walk, and it's a crazy faith walk. But pursuing, you know, what else are you going to do with your life? I mean, this is my, I, fundamentally my question is, what's the alternative? If you live a life that makes everybody happy but you, and, hey, that's never going to make everybody happy anyway, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of your life, you die. And what's been won? I'm not sure that, you know, I, it's like who knows what happens to us after we die. You probably have a belief about that. But no one really knows for sure. So yeah. I guess I think we're here. I, I guess I fundamentally believe that our happiness, um, our our expression of our own courage and, you know, our, our, our bravery it really is a brave thing to go out and be a student of yourself and listen to your own instincts and see where they take you. 
And I think as long yeah. as you are doing that with a consciousness that you live in a world with other people and you don't want to be abusive of them or, you know, create all kinds of, you know, hideous trouble on purpose for other people, there's room for you to be a, a little mischievous and there's room for you to experiment with breaking some rules and maybe even making some people uncomfortable. That might be why you were put here, you know. Sometimes people are put on this earth to, to challenge the rest of us and that's okay too. You get yep. better at that as you get more skilled. You learn how to do it in a way. You can become a master even of that. Yeah, so to me, like, hearing these things are, are, and kind of talking about these things are, are really cool. If you would have told me when I was 13 years old that I would have kind of had that same value of being, um, you know, kind of free thinking or, or, or needing wisdom behind what you told me and not just taking it for plain sight and that one day I was going to use that rebellious spirit of mine to, to do this stuff, I'd say, you know, get out of here. That's impossible. You know, and and I think that, um, I think that from kind of mass media and advertising that they do portray perhaps our twenties to be our most glamorous time in life. Like when we're younger than twenty, when we're in our teens, they're like, oh, once you get to your twenties, you know, it's going to be awesome. And um, maybe when you're older than um, thirty, kind of or forty or fifty, you kind of look back at all the golden years. You know, like those were my twenties, and and I mean, yeah. this is the way it's portrayed. And I think that it kind of it's frustrating because um, people kind of in, in those industries portray this this age as the golden year and that it's supposed to be very easy and glamorous, but it, it's oh, not. Boy. And I, I think that causes a lot of frustration and a lot of disappointment um, and even shame for, for young adults. And kind of just having this open conversation and speaking about it and, and kind of letting you know, hey, it's the norm, what you're going through, or, or that these problems exist is in itself curative. And then yeah. from... And then, and then kind of giving light and shedding hope and saying, no, your 20s aren't necessarily the coolest years of your life. Like the 30s and the 40s and so on can be like 50s and 60s, right, and 70s potentially can be like incredible. So yeah. I'm curious in, in your own life, um, kind of having, let's say, quote, unquote, graduated from the young adult phase of your life, what are the really cool parts of your life that you didn't have when you were younger but you have now? Well, wow. um, so much. You know, I, I think your insights about this are so good, Jacob. And I, I guess I have I had the same impression when I was younger that you described, that my 20s were going to be the heyday, and then from there it was kind of all downhill. And I think it, it turned out to be the opposite. And I remember people telling me that and going, well, that's lovely. That's a very nice way of making getting older sound okay. But we all know the truth, which is that the 20s are way more fun. I would not actually really want to repeat my 20s. <laughs> um, I'm glad I did them, you know, I am, and I didn't have a terrible set of 20s, but it was exhausting. I mean, I just, I think now, like, I just feel like I have become so much more adept at managing myself, at, at understanding my own emotional reactions and my desires. I've become more skilled at getting what I want and need. I've become more honoring of the people around me and more able to relate to them in a way that actually gives me satisfaction rather than feeling I just have to manipulate everybody and all the time. Life does get richer as we get older. It gets different. And I think, you know, one of my great teachers in this, in this regard is uh, my friend Cindy Joseph. And she is a model. She started out as a, um, a different kind of model. though. She, she was, I think, 49 when she was discovered as a model. Before that, she was a makeup artist. And she has this great, I just interviewed her for, for Experience Life TV. We're putting together a TV show kind of as a, a, a spinoff of the magazine. I interviewed her, 
and we've had her on the cover I think twice, and she has a blog. Um, people can find her actually a blog and vlog, a video log at um, experiencelife.com. But she is the most extraordinary person. She's 60 now I think, and she's started her own pro-aging cosmetic company and really has completely defined, redefined what it means to, be, to get older, particularly as a woman. And she makes the point that women in particular as we age, we're judged on the basis of our appearance and when our youthful beauty, our youthful version of beauty begins to fade, that we're kind of devalued. And it's like, well, it's all over for you now. You're no longer desirable. And so that's it. And she just talks about what a lie that has been in her own experience and how her life has gotten richer and a lot of what she's recognized about her own beauty, physical beauty, and also about, you know, the beautiful experience of being alive really has just gotten better with age and more interesting and sexier and cooler. But that's in part because she's chosen that path. And I think, you know, it can work out that way. I think for some people who don't develop bigger and better resources, you know, their 20s and early 30s really may be it for them. It's like that's it. That's the heyday of it. You kind of have this useful beauty and this vigor and everybody wants you and you want everybody and that's, it's, that's it. But I think that that's a sad place to stop because Honestly, I, I, I really, you know, they say sometimes youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I, I, that can be true. I guess my message to people who are in that place and, you know, either panicking because they feel like their youth is, gonna, is fleeting and going to be over too soon is, man, it really does get more compelling and more interesting and more beautiful. And people get sexier, actually, um, you know, in a weird way. I look now at younger people, and I find, you know, they can see their beauty, but God, the superficiality and the kind of lameness and the sort of, like, I just, I mean, that's why I would never want to go back. I just look at myself when I was 20, actually found my journal from when I was about 16 or 17. And, uh, and I'm sure a very lovely young woman, but oh my God, the superficiality just makes me want to like cringe reading my own diary. Like, really? That's what I was thinking about? So boring. So silly. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's good news for anybody who's worrying about their, their 20s or 30s moving on too soon. Um, I'm 45 right now, and I think my life is more intriguing than it's ever been. And I'm able to contribute in ways that, you know, I just didn't have the resources to contribute when I was younger, which is much more self-centered and self-focused when we're in our 20s. And that's fun, too. It's a good face to be. you got to go through that. It's cool. Get everything you can out of it. But, um be prepared to move on because it actually does just get more interesting. Yeah, I can I can assess from my own experience, um, kind of being 27 now and having, you know, dated for the last, you know, the better part of the last 10 years. Now, what I'm interested in a woman is very different than when I was, you know, 18 years old. Um, and now <laughs> I'm like, okay, now when I meet somebody, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to learn about them. I want to know, like, tell me about yourself. I want to know. You know, um, what are you passionate about? What are you interested in? How well do you know yourself? Um, how can we learn together? And and it's it's totally it's a much different experience that um, I, it's been incredible for me to go through because I, I kind of didn't foresee that coming. I kind of thought, okay, if you ask me what kind of girl I was attracted to, I would say, okay, I like a blonde girl with you know she's this tall, and and now it's nothing to do with physical attributes. I mean, while that is definitely relevant. It's about who are you as a person, you know? Like, what are you doing with your life? Are, are you living an interested life? Are you that's, – that's it to me. Like, are you living a life that you're interested about? And, um, and, and it goes on and on. But it's, it's really cool to kind of embrace that and, um, and, and learn that about myself. That's another thing I, I didn't really realize until, 
even the last, you know, two years or so. So I appreciate well, yeah, you know, that up. I think that's a great insight, and I think it's. I love your honesty because I think that that you just describe an experience that almost all of us can relate to. Of, you know, you have a shopping list, not just for your, you know, potential mates and partners, but for your for your job and for how your life is going to look and your apartment is going to look. And it's like you've got this external checklist of I things that like if all these things just kind of get filled in, you know, then life will be good. And it's, it, unfortunately, you can spend the vast majority of your life pursuing those check marks only to find when you have them all, you're still not happy. And that happens all the time to people who think that those external acquisitions or um, conquests or accumulations are going to be the things that make them happy. <clears throat> it takes some experimenting of getting them and finding out it makes very little difference before you believe that. And I'm not saying... Yep. That having, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting an attractive partner. In fact, it's really important to be attracted at whatever level to the person you want to be with. But um, it's kind of like it's kind of like material wealth. It, it only goes so far. And you know, if you're living in a, a a phenomenal castle, but you're isolated from everything else that matters to you, then it's called a prison. I mean, it's like being locked away in a tower. <laughs> it's just no fun. And being with a very beautiful, physically attractive person who has no soul or to whom you don't relate or with whom you don't share values and goals and, and, and dreams becomes extremely boring. And I mean, I can tell you how many people I know who have divorced absolutely, you know, physically gorgeous specimens because they were terribly shallow, selfish people. I mean, I'm not saying that all beautiful people are, but they just, in this case, these people chose for the wrong reasons and had to rethink their choice. But you figure that out by experimentation too. You know, you date a few really attractive, really boring people, and you're like, okay, yeah, that, I, that got old real fast. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, I guess that that's the fun thing about being young, and I guess, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, all of the anxiety that you have, that you have to get all this stuff done. You've got to find the right person and got to get the right money and the job and the car. and the, it all ha it, Life happens. You, know? you can just take a big, gigantic breath and like, let what's going to come, come. Let me pursue the things that I'm energized to pursue. Let me let go of the stuff that's making me unhappy or just proving to be pretty uninteresting. And you'll find yourself on a path that suits you. You just got to keep turning the turning your wheels in the direction of what turns you on. Love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. Um, it's uh, it's incredible to connect with somebody on, on such a core soulful level and to just talk about things that that matter to us and, and trust that that is you know kind of serving other people. You know, it's that combination of, of doing what we care about and kind of doing that in service to something other larger than ourselves. So thank you so much for your time. Is there any resources or anything you can think of that um, you'd like to point people to, whether your own or just things that have had like a really big impact on your life and you kind of, or, or particularly in, in your life as a young adult or now, um, and kind of, we can kind of leave that as a way to close this out. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, I always love recommending my own stuff. And I, one thing I'm really proud of with both Experience Life and with Revolutionary Act is that it's really designed for people of all ages. So we do get lovely letters from very young people, young as 12, who say they love the magazine. And particularly Rev Act, I think that there's a free app called 101 Revolutionary Ways to Be Healthy. Um, that is a fun app and a sort of neat entry point, And it kind of addresses 
all of these different ways that you can make little adjustments to your life. And some of them are really about, you know, getting honest with yourself <laughs> and having, having a little bit more authenticity and, and uh, having more fun. But I guess, you know, the biggest piece of advice I have is to be honest in your conversations with other people your own age. Many times you might feel alone and isolated because you think you're the only one who's thinking about this stuff. Um, it can be really interesting to just ask questions and open yourself up and uh, be willing to have a kind of revealing conversation with someone else your own age who you sense might be interested in some of the same things. And then you get to discover together. You know, there's no magic one book or, you know, exercise or anything like that. I think it's really I, I, the magic always happens in the questions. What if? What if we could live like this? What if, if you could do anything, what would it be? Those are the questions that sort of, I think, take people on a course that, that gets just more interesting with time. I love it. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much for the conversation, and um, we will be in touch. All right. Thanks so much, and I appreciate the time, Jacob. Keep up the great work. Thank you. So that concludes it. I'll, I'll cut this little last part off of the recording, but um, really meant what I said, and always appreciate you and your soul and all you've done to cultivate the ability to let that shine. So um, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate talking to you. Oh, thank you. I feel the same way, and I really hope you feel better soon. Yeah, I'm really glad that we that we went on with this. Um, so thank you. Appreciate that. You bet. All right, we'll talk more soon. Thanks, Jacob. Okay, later. Bye. Let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from this interview. Big idea number one, give yourself permission to explore. So much of being this age is about experimenting to see what turns us on and what pisses us off. It's less about the path we're on and more about what we can learn about ourselves. Here are some questions. What do you care about in this life? What's giving you the most pleasure and excitement? What's made you feel like you're ready to fall asleep? What are the things that you do pretty easily? What are the things that make you feel frustrated and dumb? We want to find ways to do things which leverage our best natural strengths, which support the things that we care about. Don't fall into making the mistake of choosing the path with the most money. It's more important to focus on developing skills and social intelligence than it is to start checking off the boxes of things that we're supposed to do. Give yourself permission to explore. That brings us to the next big idea, number two, solving real problems. Perhaps more than any generation, we have an enormous sense of urgency to make a difference. As a planet, the path that we're on is highly unsustainable. And some of the biggest opportunities that our generation has is to clean up the mess of older generations. Really get this, some of the biggest job and financial opportunities will come to people who focus on fixing the problems created by past generations. That is a huge freaking insight. So try to solve a problem, especially one that's giving you some type of pain and anxiety. Diving in and choosing to solve a problem from a place of passion while also being vulnerable and realizing that you don't have all the answers, that's a great recipe for success and a great way to discover your greatest gifts and service to something that actually matters to you. Once you start to pursue your passion, it's naturally going to put you on a path to connect with other like-minded people. Big idea number three is to be authentic. Success comes in the process. It's not that we reach a point and then we're finally there. It's more about operating in a stage where you feel fully engaged and on purpose. In other words, you're living in integrity with your values. That means being authentic. Why are you afraid to do something that you want to do? 
If you're currently not happy with the way you're living, what's stopping you from making the choices that you need to in order to change? When other people's judgment is keeping you stuck in a place, that's not authentic. When we're more concerned about what other people think of us than living our own life, that's not a great situation to be in. So we want to switch that up and start to make decisions that are in alignment with our values and that allow us to be more authentic. Now, Pilar also mentioned an awesome resource called The Story of Stuff. Head on over to sensify.com slash storyofstuff and you can learn more about how the pressure to consume was built into our society. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast and I'm excited to deepen our relationship to get to know each other better over time and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.